0: The great evangelist and uh, effective preacher Billy Graham once said that the test of a preacher is that his congregation goes away saying not, that was a lovely message, but I will do something. I couldn't agree more, Mr. Graham. Responding to the word, bearing fruit in our life is the best test of God's word preached. Yet as I've been preaching these last few weeks about how we envision carrying out our mission through outreach, through community, through service, I've given you more than just one something to do. Uh, unless you're compelled by the vision that's derived from God's Word or and applied by the leadership of the church, it would be easy to walk away each week when someone asks you, So what did the what did Ryan talk about this morning? Say, I don't know, I mean that guy. Lots of things. All right? I mean, there's one thing after another. It all sounded pretty ideal, all these plans and promises and whatnot. But I've got a job. Man, I mean, I've got a spouse. We have children. There's a debt to pay off. There's an insecurity in my life I need to fortify. There's this hill to climb. I've got a personal goal to seek out my career to advance and to think about. Or are any of us going to get the energy to do these sorts of things, to, to link arms and look outward, sacrificing our time and talents, not to mention probably money, to form a Christianity Explore dinner group, to brainstorm, to organize and execute servant evangelism projects, loving others with no strings attached, or taking intentional steps to form relationships with otherwise unlikely friends? who have Christ most in common. It's hard work. Or finding our gift and then identifying somewhere in the church where that gift meets a need and using it to serve the rest of the body. It's a lot. It's a lot to do. Where are we going to get the energy for such things? Now, some of these things, the Holy Spirit combines nicely. When we just take that first step, You know what I mean? That initial step. In fact, I know for a fact that one person after the sermon on community a couple weeks ago arrived early last week, took a seat next to a pair of otherwise otherwise unlikely friends. They worshiped Jesus together, heard from God's word together. Then she inquired afterwards as to whether their gift was more speaking-oriented or serving-oriented. And then she invited them this week to serve alongside her, to serve with her, to see what it's like. And they're actually doing that right now. They're back there in the Little Harcourt doing that right now. Why? Because she just took that initial step to respond to God's word, practically. So it's possible, and I hope that encourages you, spurs you on a little bit. But still leaves the question for many of us, where does someone get the energy to sustain that kind of doing? this kind of corporate community effort to serve one another, to link arms and look outward towards a community that needs the good news about Jesus? The answer is the private closet. Cultivating a life of intimacy with God by finding 45, 30, even 15 minutes each day to get alone for the purpose of feeding on the word of God. And responding in prayer. Letting God's word speak and then answering back to what he has to say to you. Very simply. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus warns about the dangers inherent to worshiping him in public alone. Just worshiping him in public. So he says to go to the storeroom or pantry closet which during his time would have been the middle of the house. No windows, no light, no distractions. Hear from God and relationally respond to him with praise, with pleas, and with petitions. That's where the Father refuels us. Whether you feel it or not, and some days you'll feel it, some days you won't. But whether you feel it or not, he puts his word and your prayers to work, energizing, compelling you and I back together to this holy mission of introducing people to Jesus and helping them grow by his grace together. But that's where we're going to get the fuel. And So this morning, in a nutshell, what I hope you hear from God's word in this message is this. If I could summarize it. The private closet Refuels public worship. The private closet refuels all that is worship together. Sharing the good news with others, serving one another, doing community together. It's all worship unto God, it's a sacrifice of praise unto Him. Now, certainly, public worship, gathering together each week, learning and seeing God's Word together, doing what I've mentioned together, protects and enlarges the private closet strengthens our time alone together with God. But my concern lies primarily in making sure that we as a church learn this life-giving reward available through the discipline of returning every day to that private closet to get refueled. My concern lies in the fact that we haven't learned that or we are at least ignoring it. This private mode of worship is my concern because the majority of us here at Sunrise have been introduced and continue to experience Jesus publicly, primarily publicly, through the Sunday morning worship and for some of us through community groups. And so the tendency is to look forward to Sundays. You know, Sundays are ahead, or that that midweek gathering is ahead. I can get my fix. I can scratch that itch. Give me the boost I need. I'm just with those other people. We're going to read today from Psalm chapter 40. So if you could grab your Bibles. This psalm was written by a man who first learned to love God in private worship. He then discovered the joy of, of dancing with other people before God and looking forward to gathering together with a congregation. He spoke of it often. But God always returned him to the private closet, to alone time in relationship with him. No person in the Old Testament had a richer interior life or closer intimacy with God than David, son of Jesse. Except maybe this guy named Enoch. His story is told, Genesis 5, Hebrews 11, we're told that Enoch walked with God, pleased God, and then never died. One day God just took him, which is a great tombstone, by the way, right? walked with God, pleased God, don't look for the body. (laughs) I was just taken by God. He just went. It's a good way to go, right? We don't know much about Enoch other than that, so we don't have a lot to actually practically learn from his life, so we'll just go with David this morning. David got to know, love, and worship God primarily in the private closet, which for him was specifically fields and caves. All right? He didn't have a literal closet, didn't have a little desk, a little nook in his home, fields and caves. The Bible infers David spent his developmental years in the fields tending sheep. Likely with his favorite musical instrument, the lyre, L-Y-R-E, not a person who's a liar (laughs) who would sing, all right? Um, But a lyre, it's like a little harp, like a mini harp, where he would spend his evenings under the starry heavens. And so often he was alone in the fields. That would even the prophet, uh, the only prophet of Israel that time, summons the sons of Jesse to choose a king. The dad doesn't even think to call Jesse in from the fields, from the sheep. Doesn't even think of it. But he was inspired in the starry fields. It was likely into that inspiration that he that he penned the prayer song known as Psalm Eight. I'll read a few verses. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You see, it's in the prayer closet, alone with God, that these kinds of thoughts come to mind. Why would you think of us so, God? Why choose human beings such rebels? Also Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, God speaks even on these nights. He talks to me. God gradually, well, so after being anointed king, then using his gift to bless the current and reigning king, the latter gets wind that this guy's been anointed the future king and he gets murderous, wants to kill him, he gets jealous. He's losing grip on his throne. So tries to kill David a few times. David flees and he finds shelter. What better place than a cave? From the private closet of caves, David would compose Psalms 57, Psalms 152, those are just the ones we know about. Psalm fifty seven one, uh, I'll read verses seven through nine as well, I'll give you an example. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. You can hear that cave kind of language, right? In the shadow of your wings I take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory, awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake at the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. You see, God gradually moves David into a delight for public worship, for corporate worship. But if you look at his life closely, the pattern of his life, we don't have time to get into it as closely. He always, God seems to intervene to get David alone with him again, put him in situations where he's alone again with God, relying just on him. Just on him. Psalm 40 expresses a picture of David's life through prayer. This ebb and flow of private and public worship. Being alone with God. Being with his people. Praising God. Leading them in God. So let's read Psalm 40 together. And note the ebb and flow of private and public worship. We begin in David's pra- private closet. Notice... "All the eyes and the mys," in these first few verses. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise as he's reflecting back on this mixture of cries with painful waiting, and then the deliverance that God brings, David writes a song. And it's this song he writes. The psalms, see you guys, are prayer songs. Uh, The 4th century church father named Athanasius said that the psalms are unique in that most of God's word speaks to us, while the psalms speak for us. And it's true. Isn't it? I hope you've experienced that at some point in the Psalms. They provide words for destructive circumstances in our lives. Pain that results from sin, from regret. Cries, pleading, waiting. But also, they provide us what we can conclude about God and about his character based on what he has done for us or in anticipation of what he will do for us seeing what he's done in the past. And they give us language for that, for our prayers, for our pleas, for our cries. Even here, David has experienced what all of us have, right? And though it's intensely personal, he also recognized it has to be shared. Keep reading in verse 3 here. Many will see and fear and will put their trust in the Lord. He's going to share it. Moving on to verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Now, you see, he's been fully transported to think on and consider what he's going to share in corporate worship when the congregation is back together. You have multiplied, O oh Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. He's, he's considering this how this personal deliverance fits in with the grander scheme of God's grace throughout history in the lives of his people. None can compare with you because of what you've done. I will proclaim and tell of all these wondrous deeds, yet they are more than can be told. Verse 6, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. David moves back into the quiet to hear something remarkable. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is written in my heart. Now he goes public again with his thoughts. I have told the glad news of your deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Then he moves back to the private closet, where is where he concludes. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head, and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether, who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and be brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, "Aha, aha!" It's my Simpsons history there. Sorry, um, but but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. I'm going to give to you this morning just three or four brief helps that I observe in Psalm 40 that the private closet offers public worship. And then what we're going to do I'm going to give you the private closet here in the Harkwell Theater. We're going to do something pretty different. We're going to have a quiet time together. Well, actually separate. And then we're going to come back together and worship God corporately, publicly. So here we go. Three or four helps that the private closet offers public worship. Number one, private reflection and recognition of God's goodness bolsters public boldness. Gives you the courage. To say something to the congregation. David's private recognition of unrestrained mercy on the part of God seems to bolster his unrestrained praise, proclamation, and testimony to God's people. You notice, did you notice the purposeful connection that David makes regarding restraint, right? In verses 9 and 10, I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. O oh, Lord. And then in verse 11, the same verbiage there. As for you, O oh Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. No, in other words, keep on giving. He's making a connection here. You kind of get the sense that he might have restrained his speech to the masses had God restrained his goodness, but God doesn't restrain his goodness. Even when he speaks, it kind of sounds like he's reporting back to God, right, on how the mission went uh, of talking to people about his goodness. Right? He says, as you know, O Lord, I said these things. I didn't hold back. I didn't conceal. I'm just giving you a report on what you encouraged me to do, on what you kind of pushed me to do. You get the restraint that he needed a little convincing from God. David isn't necessarily a, a sort of gifted speaker. Who's, he doesn't seem to be the sort of guy who's ready to share anything at any time. He's definitely more of the meditative sort. He was renowned, in fact, for his restraint. His predecessor tried to murder him, but David waited until he had to flee. He kept trying to murder him, and then David had opportunities to kill him back. Easy. Kill. Get rid of this guy. His commander said, Why didn't you kill him in that dark cave? And David said, I'm going to wait. I'm going to restrain myself. I'm not going to kill God's anointed. He's renowned for his restraint. His own son tried to take his throne. Did you know that? And he actually did so temporarily. You know what David did? Just abdicated his throne and walked away silently, trusting God to take care of him. Remarkable restraint. But the more he gets alone with God, and he plays back that reel, he starts to see the, the, the most perfect timing in the way God worked this deliverance into his life. He, the way he provided for His maybe his family along the way. There, you know, he cared for every detail, for each moment. That Had God actually rescued him earlier, he wouldn't have seen God's great glory. You know those moments in your life? I hope you've seen that. Or you recognize God's perfect time, his perfect provision. Man, God knew exactly what I needed in that moment for not only myself, but my friends or my family or this community. What about you? Are you holding back something that might bless God's people, a gift, a testimony today, sharing in your community group? Don't think, and I don't think this morning, by the way, I'm speaking to a typical chair like myself, you know, who's willing to share kind of anything, anytime. time. And I sense God saying this to the reluctant, to those who might otherwise hold back. But even now in the quiet, the Holy Spirit light bulb is coming on, and you're recognizing, man, God has loved me. He has cared for me. He has delivered me at just the right time, knowing my circumstances. And I need to share that with the people of God. Maybe you'll share with us then this praise, this testimony, maybe even this morning. Second way, that private worship, our private closet fuels public worship. It's an interesting phrase here. He digs out ears for us to hear wondrous truths. See this here in verses 6 through 8. There are two basic ways to approach the Bible if you wish to cultivate growth in your life. Two very basic ways, study and meditation. Um, and my best way, to, I think, to explain this is through schooling. All right, what what is largely important to 21st century schooling? So we have kids all the way through teenage years into adulthood. Examination, getting it right, getting results, some standardization to measure that. And there is a place for this, uh, just as there is when reading God's Word. When you read God's Word, asking questions, interrogating the text. Who, what, when, where, why? Gaining basic understanding for the time and the place where this happened, the author who wrote it. Comparing different verses and different passages across time and in the Bible. These things give us a standard framework for which we can have unity together. As a body, we can approach doing church together, understanding the gospel together, not simply say, oh, it's all open to interpretation. Yet, schooling doesn't just mean this. In fact, it's interesting, uh, the Greek word skole, school, actually literally means leisure, or leisure, how you like to say it. That's because for the Greeks, school was this protected space and time provided to cultivate growth through the unhurried relationships, even through games. And that's how you cultivated learning. I think sometimes that's how we need to cultivate reading the word of God. Too often God's word is read but not heard, examined but not slowed down, turned over, chewed on, really considered. To this we read what the psalmist David says here who gets alone with God and says this very unique phrase, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted but you have given me, read that, An open ear. Uh, Given me, as translated from a Hebrew word, karita. Karita, which means you have dug out. Author uh, Eugene Peterson asks us to imagine a human head with no ears. So imagine this for yourself. A human head, no ears, a block head, if you will. Eyes, mouth, nose, no ears on the side. Where ears are usually located, it's a smooth, impenetrable surface like granite. Right? God speaks, but nothing kind of gets in there. Remember, this metaphor is in the context of bustling religious activity, sacrifice, offering, but they're not delighted in, they're not required. People had the prescriptions in God's Word, in Exodus, in Leviticus the know-how, what sacrifice needed to be made, how it needed to be made. And they would gotten the ritual right, right? Going to church, being a good parent, helping others, doing the right thing. But something was missing. God is trying to say something. He takes a pickaxe and digs out a passage through which, can hear what he has to say into our minds and into our hearts. digging out ears for us to hear. What, what, what a great description of what we need so often in life to hear from God. Happens from David to hear this most wondrous truth. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I desire to do your will. O oh, my God, your law is written in his heart. What, what is this? What's he talking about here? David's saying, Look at me. I'm a really good person. I love to do your will. It's all my heart. No, David's no longer speaking of himself, but God is speaking through him about someone else. No matter how much one sacrifices or offers of themselves, they always fall short. They always choose times, right? We know this where we don't want to live according to God's will, but our own will. Not God's law, but live by our own law. But there is one who in every instance wants God's will. Loves God's will. Loves and delights in his law. There is someone who was to come for David and has already come for us. Who can credit to us the righteousness that we couldn't attain on our own. That's who David's talking about this. So what happens is in private... With God, God digs out ears for him to hear this prophetic truth about Jesus. How will you behold wondrous truths in God's word if you don't carve out space for God to give you ears to hear, to dig out for you ears to hear? Rest assured, guys, your your father waits in a private closet ready to dig out ears for you to hear a wondrous truth. A third encouragement here, and have a quiet time, a sober examination of injustice. Namely, I put the I in injustice. By getting alone with God, we can see that I put the I in injustice. In verse 12, David gets alone and begins to consider the evils that have, quote, encompassed me beyond number. He is overwhelmed with the evil of life. Then he begins to realize something. Notice the turn here in verse 12, sorry. He begins to realize, as all who cultivate intimacy with God and allow God's word, which is described as a hammer, a fire, and a sword. In other words, it cuts into us, makes our heart more tender. He begins to realize that most of the evil he experiences stems from himself. It's a hard reality to learn, but a necessary. He says, my iniquity. So he goes from, these, these evils have encompassed me beyond number to, oh, my iniquities have overtaken me. Such that I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Do you notice that? He starts with, there's so much evil in the world. There's so much injustice. There's so much wrong. But if I get with God, and I look at my life in light of God's word, My iniquities. Have overtaken me. And that starts with me, Lord. I think it's interesting here. Um, the image we get here from this phrase, I cannot see there more than the hairs of my head. I get the image of a nine-year-old boy, probably because I have a nine-year-old boy, who continues to get hair in his face because of lack of a haircut, probably because I deal with that every two months. I have to drag my kid to get a haircut. He complains that he can't see, and you know, like, why are basketballs hitting me in the face? And then all of a sudden he gets a haircut, like, oh, I see, (laughs) that's the image here. Oh, I see, it was my sin. (laughs) All these hairs in my head, which outnumbered everything else I can consider. David had a personal prophet named Nathan who once told him a story about a man who owned a little lamb that he raised from youth. Along came a rich traveler who didn't want to get a lamb for supper from his own flock, and so he took this this one poor man's little lamb, and he took it for dinner. As David heard this story from the prophet, he was incensed and said, that man deserves to die. To which Nathan quickly responded, you are that man. You have done that to someone in your life. We have every word of God through the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Yet our swift judgments about the ills of others, about societies, and even church, seem so wise and sufficient. We just throw them out there. Maybe even grabbing coffee afterwards, we'll mention them. We don't bring ourselves to God's word. Think about some of the causes. Might be us. This, this literally happened to me not too long ago. One night I was in tears just listening to a story about a, a nurse caring for a, a child with cancer. And I just thought about, man, this is such an awful evil that exists in our world. The next morning, I woke up to a uh, civvy day, though. My eyes were still puffy from the night before. And if you don't know, the schools have these things called uh, civic days or civvy days, short. As far as I can tell, they're a way to allow kids to wear T-shirts and shorts while earning money for various causes. All right, so you pay five bucks, you know, for this or for that. And you get to wear T-shirts and shorts. And what, what parent's are going to say no to their kids wearing T-shirts and shorts at school instead of a uniform, right? I mean, it's like, great. Here's the $5. I have no choice. Right, it's just like you're holding me up here at gunpoint. And I, uh, this particular civvy day was to raise money for breast cancer. But I just remember going, kind of going off about it, like I have just now. Like, great. All right. Here's some more money for another cause. Just just go for it. I pay 10000 a year almost for this school. Like, you know, whatever in front of my children, and then I go, five minutes later, open my Bible, and I read, it's amazing, I read 2 Samuel 12, Nathan's parable to King David, you are that man, and man, it cut me. Before I thought about this injustice of cancer and an opportunity to support fighting that injustice, then in front of my kids, I say, not worth it. You are that man. How often are we that person? Would I have recognized that in the eye and injustice had I not gone before God? Probably not. I probably would have carried it with me, infected others with it. You know how you carry that with you? Drag yourself to the private closet, let God do surgery on you. It hurts at first, but his ultimate aim is to heal. I'll close with this. In seventeenth century France lived a very, very smart dude. Blaise Pascal. Um, he was a math genius, inventor, grandfather of the computer. So you can thank him for that. He was also really the father of what is now modern-day calculus. So you can thank him for that as well. <laughs> or throw a protractor at him. Either way. <laughs> he was once asked, what, what do you think is the cause for the unhappiness of the human race? His response I have discovered that all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. Every endeavor to reach out to the lost and the marginalized, to serve one another with the gift God's given us, to be a community who reaches past all typical things in common to Jesus in common, will last because you and I return every day to refuel in the private closet with our God and Father pray. Father, thank you so much. that You are willing every day to meet us one-on-one, just you and I, the God of creation. And Father, forgive us for the times that we say, no, hearing from other people is more important. My goals are more important. My thing is more important. My judgment on this matter, my truth on this matter is all I really need. Father, in the private closet, you're willing to refuel us with unrestrained mercy. You're willing to open up to us, to dig out ears for us and open up to us wondrous truths from your word. If we would just listen and take the time in the quiet. We would be willing to see that the biggest injustice in this world is ourselves but then there and then confess our sins and let you heal us through the cross. Father, help us go there, run there every morning or every evening, sometime during the day to refuel that we might be a community who worships together, who loves one another together, who does links arms and looks outward to love a community together. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.